Well, good morning. My name is Ken, and happy Mother's Day. To all you moms out there, biological, adoptive, foster moms, mother-in-laws, happy Mother's Day. Of course, we here at Crossroads Bible Church, we gather weekly to worship Jesus. But it is good for us to celebrate you moms. A good friend of mine, Frank, back in New Jersey once told me, he said, Ken, if us guys were responsible for having babies, the whole world's population would die out in one generation. Moms, happy Mother's Day. With that being said, as many of you already know, we are currently working our way through a sermon series, a series of messages in which we are looking at pictures of the gospel concrete images in which we are scouring both the Old Testament and the New Testament of the Bible to see the unique way that these pictures point us to Jesus. Of course, this is a great sermon series for us to be in, one in which we will be spending the next few months scouring the pages of the scriptures. Yet it is at this very moment that I would like to give you the historical background to our passage this morning. Would it be okay if I give you the historical background to our passage? All right, good. It's only going to take 45 minutes. (laughs) If I had to summarize the historical background to our passage this morning in just two words, I would summarize it as bad news. Gospel good news, passage bad news. Let me tell you what I mean. Uh, The historical background of our passage is filled with bad news because there's people in a city who are literally starving to death. Yes, they're starving to death. In the ancient city of Samaria, a town that was once the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel, a city that was filled with thousands and thousands of Israelites, the people in that city were literally dying on the streets Because there was not enough food to eat. Indeed, this is bad news. And the source of this famine wasn't because there was uh, not enough rain coming down from the sky, nor was there a lack of laborers to go out into the fields to harvest the crops. Oh, no, no. The source of this famine was simply this. There was an enemy military force that was causing this famine in this ancient city, of Samaria. Yes, a pesky northern neighbor named the Aramaeans, it is in what now we would call Syria, came down to Samaria. And the way in which they came down to Samaria is they employed one of the oldest yet most effective military strategies ever designed. Can you tell me what that strategy is? Any guesses? Siege warfare. Very good. A++. Siege warfare. So essentially this is what happened. The Aramaeans took their mighty military force and surrounded Samaria. And the reason why they did this was Samaria was one of those cities that had a lot of good natural fortifications. Big hills and mountains, natural water coming up right to it. So it was a terrible idea to try to do a frontal assault on Samaria. 
So the Arameans did this nice siege warfare around the city so that no one inside the city could leave to grab food or other necessary supplies. Uh, If someone were to run out of the city to go find some food, they would be swallowed up by this mighty military force, kind of like shooting fish in a barrel. And the reason why siege warfare is so effective is that you simply have to just wait, right? The Arameans won't lose any of their soldiers or their military supplies. They just wait until the conditions inside the city become so unbearable, folks come out with a white flag. Let me give you a little bit more historical background before we enter into our passage. Here's a few reports of just how bad things were in the city and how desperate people were to live. Here's the first report. People were willing to give an entire year's worth of their salary to purchase a donkey's head to eat. Now, I don't know about you. I've never cooked a donkey's head before. But from what I understand, there is hardly any sustenance to feed a family. Yet people were willing to spend all that they made in 2016 to buy one. Here's another report. Uh, There's a report that people were spending a tremendous amount of money on something called dove dung. Now, the funny thing here is biblical scholars, strangely enough, are debating what does that actually mean. Uh, Folks, what is dove dung? Bird poop. Okay, people were buying bird poop to eat and use as fuel. That's how desperate they were. But here's the worst report of all. There was reports in the city, and I will spare you the details, of cannibalism. People were eating other people to survive. That's how bad the bad news was in Samaria. And once the king of Samaria heard about this bad news, all these reports, he ripped off his clothes and chose to wear mourning clothes. Mourning clothes are like the black suit or black dress that you would wear to a funeral because the king, the leader of this city, is telling everyone there is no hope. God will not rescue us. Physical starvation, desperation, hopelessness in this bad news story. And it's precisely at this moment, that moment that many of you are looking at me with a lot of confusion. How are we going to work in a sermon series about good news when we're talking about a story that is filled with bad news? Well, those of you who believe in Jesus, you know that the gospel, the good news, becomes oh so much clearer when our lives are surrounded in bad news. This is precisely why we're going to accomplish three very simple tasks this morning as we look into our passage. Three tasks. Here they are. The first is, we're going to do our best to see how do we find good news when our lives are surrounded in bad news. What physical things must we do or postures must we embrace to see something good, gospel, when the world around us is crumbling? That's number one. Number two, what does the image look like? The sermon series is gospel pictures. Well, what is the gospel picture in this story? And then lastly, what do we do about it? Once we see good news in our passage, 
What do we do with it? How do we find it? What does it look like? And what do we do with it? With that being said, I would like to invite you all to stand as you are able. And please turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. Now, I must warn you, this is going to be an abrupt stoppage. I'm not going to read the whole passage to you up front. We're just going to start with verses 3 and 4. Please listen as I read to you these two verses. Now, there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate, the city gate in Samaria. And they said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say, if we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there and we will die. And if we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. Please have a seat. The story has a little comedy in it too. The scene is now much more clearer of this bad news passage, there's four fellows, four guys with leprosy sitting at the city gate of Samaria. They're on the outside of the city gate, not on the inside behind the protective walls. They are on the outside of the city. And the reason why they are forced to live on the outside of the city gate is because they have leprosy. That gnarly skin disease that leaves boils and lesions and scales all over one's body. So the people inside the city, their family and their friends, force them to live out there because they don't want that disease to come inside and spread like wildfire. So they live outside the city gate, which means they probably live their whole lives out there. They live their whole lives outside the city gate. Not just now that things are really terrible and there's an enemy force surrounding the city, but even back in those good days, when people like their family or their friends would bring them food or other charitable gifts to help them live. Those days are over. There's no resources to spare lepers outside the city gates. They really can't go and forage around those massive hills of Samaria rummaging for food and other things because there's this military force right out there. These four guys are stuck between a rock and a hard place. Our text wonderfully and almost comically captures their challenge and how they do have options. Let's walk through those options together. The first option is this. They could just stay there. They could just stay there at the city gate. I mean, the Arameans aren't running at them right now. They're just there. But eventually they're going to starve to death. So option number one, they die. Option number two, They stand up, they turn around, they knock on the door, and they say, hey, let us in. But they're at the city gate, which means they can hear all the bad things that are going on inside, where donkey heads are being sold and cannibalism, a king that's lost all hope. They know it ain't good in there. So option number two equals death. But there's a third option they could go over to the enemy camp and ask for food, to beg for mercy. 
And this would be very easy for them to do, right? They could just kind of stroll over there and say, hey, you know, we don't have a whole lot of love for the people back in that city. I mean, they've forced us to live like outsiders and outcasts our entire lives. We were never allowed to go to our little brother's birthday party last year, or we weren't allowed to go to the microbrew and tip back a pint with our friends, or cheer on our favorite Sumerian football teams in the fall. They weren't allowed to do any of those things. So they could have easily explained to this enemy force, hey, look, we have no loyalty to them. And then they would have gotten on their knees and begged for some bread to eat. Option three is their only shot to get a bite to eat. However, as you're already thinking in your heads, most likely these four guys are going to sneak up to the camp and an Aramean soldier is going to see him and grab a spear and just go boop, 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 boop. Why? They're Israelites and they're lepers. Why would they want them to come near their camp? So most likely they're still going to get killed, but they're still a slim chance that by taking this risk, trusting that it's their best option, they will live. I would like to put forth the argument right here and right now that those four guys were in the best place in this bad news story. Yes, being outside the city gate was the absolute best place to be because being out there, you're forced to take a risk, to live. Juxtapose them with the people inside the city. Remember, Samaria is one of those towns that has big walls. The people inside there, even though they're starving to death, they can kind of camp out inside there comfortably, slowly dying because there's not enough food to eat. But they feel strangely safe, not compelled to take a risk to live. But those four fellas outside the gate, those four guys, they have to take a risk to live. As I make this claim, I recognize that many of us in this room, me included, many of us this very moment feel as though we are sitting outside the city gate. Some of us might be like me before I became a Christian uh, I was one of those folks who was literally starving. Uh, I thought that I could find my happiness and joy in life by being the wildest person you've ever met. At every bar and party, there was always one person howling at the moon or jumping off things. That was me. And I thought that those were the things that were good and gave me a thrill and a rush for living. But there came a point when my body was starting to fall apart and a bunch of other things. The party started to end. And I found myself at the city gate starving for something more. Maybe you're at the city gate starving, not because you're a wild person like I was, or still am in some ways, uh, but maybe you're there because you're yearning for a relationship. You think that because you can meet a guy or a gal, that that is the key to living life, that that's going to feed you what you need in order to live but when it doesn't work out with that guy or that gal or you never meet them, you find yourself sitting at the city gate starving. And then there might be some of us here who thought, well, hey, you know what? I'm going to make a whole bunch of money and I'll buy all the things that I think I'll ever need with the money that I make. And not make I'm not saying that money, making money is bad, but what if we think that that is our salvation? 
And then we come to the end of making all of our money and we realize we need something more to feed us. We too are at the city gate this very day starving. Then there might be some of us who find ourselves at the city gate today, not because of anything that we've chosen to do, but because life has forced us to the gate. Yeah, what if you're like a leper? You're born with MS, or you're fighting cancer right now, or maybe you're battling a clinical depression. You're anxious, you're lonely, and you're finding yourself right there at the city gate, not because of a bad choice, because that's where you find yourself, because no one understands. And then lastly, there might be some of us who are at the city gate just because of sin. Our pride, our sin, led us to the city gate. Maybe we've hurt people in relationships in ways that we never can be forgiven, or at least we think. Or we've done underhanded business, thing, business deals and hurt people in the marketplace. And because of those sins, we find ourselves hopeless like the king of Samaria saying, hey, there's no way God can rescue me from the city gate. Friends, the city gate is still the absolute best place to be in a bad news story. It's the best place to be because that's the best place to take a risk to see good news. It's the best place that compels us to take a risk in trusting that our option is the only way to find food that will give us life. Perhaps it might be helpful for us to have some concrete examples of individual people that took risks trusting that it was their best shot. Can I give you two? No? Okay, I won't. Okay, I will. I have to. It's Mother's Day. The first person that comes to my mind is a gal named Rahab. Perhaps you've heard of her in the book of Joshua. And she was a prostitute. She was from a town called Jericho. And Rahab had heard about this God named Yahweh and how God, Yahweh, is super powerful. And through his chosen people, they are like conquering the world. So when these spies, these Israelites, came knocking on her door and said, hey, can we hide in your house? She took a risk, trusting that this was the best way for her to live. The risk was, if the people in Jericho find out, they're gonna, she's going to get killed. So is her family but she trusted that this was the best chance to live because Yahweh is a coming and Yahweh's gonna come and knock down Jericho. There's one example. Here's a second. My favorite book in the Old Testament. Favorite is a book called Ruth, named after a gal named Ruth. And there's this really powerful moment in the book of Ruth. You should look at it tonight or today or tomorrow or every day. There's this really, really powerful moment in the book of Ruth where Ruth, a widow from a place called Moab, uh, her husband just died, her mother-in-law's husband just died, so she and this other widow are standing there um, like in the desert, and they are looking at each other, and the mother-in-law's like, hey, Ruth, you're young, you can still have kids, leave me, I will only slow you down. And Ruth looks that mother-in-law dead in the eye and says, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. Ruth trusted that the risk of going with this lady that makes no sense was her best chance to live. See some parallels in those two gals? I mean, yes, they're women. That's an obvious parallel. Uh, another parallel is they're not Israelites. But there's another parallel that's really important for today. Come on, guys. 
They're moms, right? They become moms. And they're not just any ordinary mother, which there never is an ordinary mother. Mothers are high and lifted up. But they are moms that we see listed in a genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Two ladies who took a risk, trusting that it was the best thing that they could do to live, have found their way into the New Testament, into the story of Jesus Christ. Love it. That's how we find good news, is by taking a risk, a risky faith. Now, we still have a second task to work through, and that is to see this gospel picture. So, Turn in your Bibles, you can stay seated, to 2 Kings chapter 7. We're going to read now verses 5 through 8 to see the gospel picture. Here we go. At dusk they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. So they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and the Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in, in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp, entered one of the tents, and ate and drank. Then they took silver, gold, and clothes and went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. We'll stop right there. So back into our story. Let's go back to the story. The four guys, they leave the city gates. They take this risk, trusting it's their best shot. They're sneaking up to the Aramean camp as stealthily as they possibly can. It's still kind of dark at night. They want to get their best way of taking their final approach to beg for mercy. So they're sneaking up. They must be nervous. Any of us would be nervous too, right? If we're about to approach a mighty military force that doesn't like us, we would be scared. So they do this. They sneak up. They look around. They see tents, roaring fires, military equipment strewn over this hundreds and hundreds of yards of field where lots of resources are, but not a single Aramean soldier is milling around. This can't be right. The four fellas sneak up to one of the tents. They go, maybe these big burly army guys are sleeping. So they peer inside of a tent. They look inside there. No one's there. Everyone's gone. The tents are filled with food, bread, wine, water, gold, silver, horses, donkeys, military equipment. There's like this huge treasure and they're the only people in the world that know about it. What these four guys didn't know is that God had already scared the enemy away. As you heard in the text, God created some sounds, sounds of chariots and archers and troops marching. And these Arameans freaked out. I mean, they're thinking the Egyptians and the Hittites are coming. That's kind of like Canada having... Uh, Russia and the U.S. coming after them. There's just no way they're going to win that war, right? So, I mean, I hope there's no Canadians out there, but, I mean, these are two mighty militaries coming at them, so they drop everything and flee for their lives. 
And these four guys see this open playing field of goodies and they stuff their faces. They line their pockets with gifts. Then they go and they stash all this stuff in their secret hideouts. They come back. They do the same thing in a second tent. And I want to pause right there. Let's pause right there. A word that is not explicitly mentioned in our passage, although it's a word that would have definitely been present in those tents. The word is bread. Here's why I say this. Uh, Bread was a staple in the ancient Israelite diet. Not just theirs, but pretty much everybody else in the ancient world ate bread in every meal. In linguistic analysis, you can look at all sorts of ancient documents, and many times you'll see that bread is used synonymously with meals. That's how common bread was. We're in a sermon series where we're trying to see pictures of the gospel. Friends, the picture of the gospel in our passage is the bread that gives life. These guys were eating bread. Yes, it's great that the enemy's gone and all those other things happen, but the bread's the thing that gives them life. Now, this is a church that reads the scriptures oh so closely, just like I do. I'm also a fellow Bible nerd. So some of you are looking at me and you're wondering, well, how is this gospel? Okay, this is an Old Testament passage, number one. There's no Jesus flown around here. How is this a pointer to the gospel? If you're asking that question, that is a good question to be asking then I would counter it with, well, what is the gospel? Well, let me tell you what the gospel is. Here's the gospel. The gospel is God's gift. A gift that comes from God. A gift of something that God has already done for us. Yes, God gives us this gift as a work that he's done on our behalf so we can't say that we've ever created the gospel on our own. And it's the gift that God gives to us to give us life. God scared the enemy away, already did this thing on our behalf. God provided this opportunity for plenty of food for these four lepers to stuff their faces with bread that gives life. Okay, now that's great. We got a definition of what the gospel is. We can see it in this passage. But what do we do next? Well, let's talk about the gospel in Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus is the gospel for us Christians. And here's how Jesus is the gospel. God has revealed himself to us in Jesus. Jesus is God. In Jesus is Christ's life. He shows us how to live. He teaches us how to live with his sermons and his wonderful teachings. In his life, he shows us these miraculous things that he himself as God can only do. In Jesus Christ's death on the cross, he saves us from our sins. He exchanges all the foolish things that we've done called sin, and he replaces them with forgiveness. And he does that to reconcile us, bring us back into a relationship with himself. His resurrection proves that this is good news. My friends, do you see that Jesus and Jesus alone is the gospel? Can I get an amen? Yes, he is the gospel. But how do we marry Jesus as the gospel with this Old Testament passage where there's this thing called the bread that gives life? 
but we marry it with Jesus' own words. Jesus looked at a crowd of people, of Israelites in fact. He looked directly at those people and this is exactly what he said in a sermon. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the bread that gives life. For those of us who are sitting at the city gate, this is good news. If you're at the city gate and you're starving, you need something to feed you up, to give you the life that you know you were meant to live. Jesus is the bread that you must eat. He is the bread that is good news right here, right now, to give your life meaning at the city gate. For those of us who've been pushed to the city gate because we're desperate, we think there's no hope, Jesus Christ's words in this book Jesus' very own words, those letters in reds, those words you must eat because those are the words that will give you life, my friend. In those weak and dark moments, when we feel like we're carrying those heavy burdens all on our own, Jesus looks at all of us and he says, come to me. Friends, perhaps you've been there in those dark times and you've found that Jesus is the bread of life by eating his words. And for those of us who think we're just too far away, that we've done the most ridiculous of all things, Jesus is looking at you today and he's saying, I will give you eternal life. Not just good news right here and now, but for all eternity, you will be with me. Come and eat the bread of life. Come and believe in me. The gospel picture of our passage is simply Jesus is the bread of life. And the really, really cool thing in this passage, in Jesus' sermon, I mean, it's so cool. Jesus says, come. He simply says, come to me. Don't get your act together and follow all those silly religious rules that we Christians like to create as barriers for people to come to Jesus. Jesus says, come to me just as you are right here and now and eat from me. We can translate that back into our passage. Jesus is saying, leave the city gate and come to me. Take a risk on me and I will give you life. That's what Jesus is saying. Well, there are many of you who are good students, and a good student knows that there still is one more task for us to accomplish in our time together. One more task is we see this good news picture. It points us to Jesus. But what do we do with it? What do we do with this good news? And we can return back to our story. There are these four fellows who are stuffing their faces, going from one tent tent, and then stockpiling the stuff, then going to another tent, stockpiling the stuff. But remember what I said, there are tents that cover like a a kajillion football fields. I know that's not possible, but there's a lot of supplies. There's more food than they will ever be able to eat on their own. What do you think is going to happen to the food that they can't eat? Spoil, it's going to rot. So they have a dilemma. Do they just stay there and continue to eat the food? And hide it all to themselves? Let's listen to what those four fellows say next. Verse 9. 
And if you're one of those highlight people, highlight verse 9. Then they, the four lepers, said to each other, what we're doing is not right. This, this is a day of good news. And we are keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. On your own, you can continue to read the rest of the story but I want to hunker down right there on this awareness that these four guys realize something, that if they just stay at the tents and stuff their faces for the rest of their lives, that is not right. Because it's a day of good news. They were reminded that back in Samaria, all those people that have treated them like outcasts their entire life, back there, there are people who are starving to death and don't know that just outside of their reach, there is more than enough food for them to eat. Back in that city, there are people who are desperate doing horrible things to themselves and to each other. And just outside their city gate, if they would just go outside the city gate, they don't have to be desperate anymore. Just back in that city, there are people who are hopeless, who think God has turned their back on them. But if they would just stroll out a few hundred yards, they would find a reason for hope. And these four guys, these four guys know that they got to do something to tell those people back home, today is a day of good news. And that is simply answered by looking at that word, good news. In the Hebrew, it's a word called besora. Yes, besora. And besora has two components. This word good news does not work unless you have these two pieces to it. The first piece is simply this. Good news is a message of good news for those who are afflicted, those who are suffering. So it's a message. The second component that you must have to have good news is you have to have a messenger who's sent to tell afflicted people good news. You need a messenger to relay the message. Friends, right here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, there are plenty of people who are trapped in a city of high fortified walls who are starving to death and don't always know it who are desperate making horrible decisions with their lives, who are hopeless, who think they've done things that they can never be forgiven of. And we, the tasters of Jesus Christ, we are the ones that are being sent back to tell them good news. Today is a day of besoda, good news. So the answer in the most punchy and clear ways I can possibly share with you of, the, of what we're supposed to do with good news is simply this. Invite others to come and eat. It's an invitation to come and eat. Well, as I say that, there's some of us who are here who think, well, I didn't go to seminary. Uh, I haven't been a Christian for very long. Um, I think I'm a heretic about some of the ideas I have. I have my own doubts sometimes. I never was a formal leader in any kind of ministry. I'm only 21. All sorts of reasons that might be filtering through our heads telling us why we can't be a messenger of the message. Well, I'd like to share with you just a quote from a movie as we end our time together. It's a quote from a movie called Invictus. Perhaps you've heard of it. 
Uh, it's a movie that captures the story of South Africa in recent times. And Morgan Freeman is in that movie, and he plays Nelson Mandela. And then Matt Damon is also in that movie, plays a star rugby player. And there's this wonderful scene where the two men finally meet. And Nelson Mandela, Morgan Freeman, looks at Matt Damon, and he says, hey, you know, I heard that in the most recent rugby match, uh, you guys won, and that's awesome, but you were really injured. I'm sorry, that must have been a bummer to be an athlete at that level and not be able to perform your best because you're injured. And Matt Damon says something in return that I think all of us should never forget. He looks at Morgan Freeman and he says, sir, we all play hurt. We all play hurt. Every messenger is a beggar. (laughs) Just because some of us go to seminary or are leaders in Jesus' community, we're still a beggar. That's why I think D.T. Niles really captures this passage best when he says, all we really are as Christians are beggars that invite other beggars to come and eat. So no matter where you are in your faith or journey following Jesus, you are a messenger of the message. Please pray with me. Dear Jesus, we thank you first and foremost always for your gospel, for you and the unique way that you love us and revealed yourself to us. We thank you that many of us who have sat at the city gate struggling and floundering, starving for something to eat, you've come to us, Jesus, and you've given us all the bread that we'll ever need. And now, Jesus, we just ask that we will be those messengers, those beggars that are going out and telling other beggars, come and eat. Give us the courage to do just that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, of course, when we talk about Jesus as the bread of life, it only makes sense that we would take communion. So there's two things, and then I'll read Jesus' words to you too. Communion is a great opportunity for us to, one, be reminded of the gospel, Jesus Christ. But then number two, it's a great opportunity for us to be reminded that Jesus himself is sending us to invite others to come to this table. So please listen as I read to you Jesus' words in that sermon in John chapter 6. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. This is it, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son, who looks to me and believes in me, shall have eternal life, and I will raise them at the last day. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, the bread of life, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you, actually, you know what? For whenever we 
eat this bread and drink this cup, we, brothers and sisters, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Before I pray, just a couple logistics. Uh, we have tables scattered throughout, and most of the tables will be, they'll have servers. If there's no server at your table, just self-serve. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for a chance. As a community, we get to come together and just eat. Eat you. Be reminded of what you've done for us and what you're calling us to do now. And Lord, our hearts, hearts ache for the people who haven't tasted that you are the bread of life. Give us words. Give us actions. Give us the ability just to be your witnesses in our everyday lives. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.